We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to Blue Skies. This is part two in our feature on the nuclear renaissance in Canada, the amazing developments in energy that will help us meet our climate objectives and help us sell Canadian technology and know-how around the world. It was recorded in June before I wrapped up as Member of Parliament on Canada Day. The news in July has been even more exciting. More small modular reactors for Darlington here in the Durham region. A new build of a large-scale nuclear generation station at Bruce, a world-class facility that is already the largest in the world. And Globe and Mail headlines and editorials focusing on this great technology. I wrote about this at the end of last year, saying the future was bright. One word, nuclear, on my Substack. I'm so happy to be seeing this for our clean energy future, for jobs, and for our innovation economy. This will be the last blue skies that I recorded as Member of Parliament. But if you want more long-form, intelligent discussion of issues facing Canada and the world, let me know what you'd like to hear because we intend to keep blue skies going as I transition to be President Managing Director of Adit in North America. I hope you enjoy part two of the nuclear renaissance. Today on Blue Skies, we're continuing our series on nuclear, its renaissance, its importance in the global fight to lower carbon emissions, the amazing 80,000 plus jobs we have in Canada attributable to this technology and opportunities at home and around the world in the future. And we're so fortunate today to have as our guest, the president and CEO of the Organization of Canadian Nuclear Industries, Bill Walker. Bill is someone I'm proud to call a friend and someone who's been a public servant and a community champion his whole life. He's a three-term member of provincial parliament for the great riding of Bruce Gray Owen Sound. He served as the chief government whip in the PC government of Premier Ford, also as the Minister of Government and Consumer Services and Associate Minister of Energy. That came to him very naturally because Bill, in opposition, where he served alongside the MPP for Durham for a time, John O'Toole, my dad, uh, Bill was the chair of the Nuclear Caucus at Queen's Park for the PCs. And prior to politics, he actually worked at Bruce Power in his community. He's also given back to that community, and that's why they sent him to Queen's Park. He's raise money and awareness for heart and stroke, for the Blue Water Education Foundation, and of course, the Wyerton Willie Festival. Now let's start off there, Bill. Welcome to Blue Skies. Thank you very much, Aaron. And just before, because I don't want to lose time at the end, I want to thank you for all of your contributions and, and your public service in all of your different careers. Uh, you're an upstanding guy that I, I truly am honored to know and be a friend and, and equally with your dad. Uh, that's that's lovely. But let's not leave Wyatt and Willie because there was a major, major crisis in Bruce Gray Owen Sound this last year. We lost Willie, right? T tell us about that tragedy for Canada. 
Well, without a shadow of a doubt, it is always a big thing around the world when Wyatt and Willie is, is not there to be able to give that prediction. And ironically, many, many years ago, back in 1999, the first demise of Wyatt and Willie, I was actually the festival coordinator. And that was a bit of a scramble as a relatively young guy with no media training. But we got through it. Uh, we found some new Wyatt and Willies, uh, some offspring. And yeah, this year was one of those ones, again, uh, where always a challenge. Uh, an albino ground dog's not easy to find or keep. No. And there's competitors for his title as the great prognosticator of spring, you know, Shubanakity Sam and some of these upstarts. But it really is Wyatt and Willie that that tells us whether spring's coming, although it's very cold in, in Ottawa today. So um, maybe Willie needs to hit, hit the books again. But listen, I'm not here to talk about the amazing cultural festival in your riding. I'm here to talk about a, an industry. And why don't you start off? You, you are probably one of the leaders of the most important industry group for this sector in Canada, the Organization of Canadian Nuclear Industries. Talk about who you are, what you do, your members, and your impact on our economy. Great. Thank you very much, Aaron. Uh, yes, we have about 230 members across Canada. The bulk of them are in Ontario, but we are uh, out in the East Coast, and we're looking actually in Saskatchewan and Alberta in regard to the SMR. So 230 members strong from, you know, the very small two-person uh, shop, uh, whether it would be an engineer or, or whatever the, the specific areas are, right up to the big, big companies that are that are there. And then we also have the utilities that aren't necessarily partners, but they are very engaged in our sector. And obviously, many of our members serve them directly and indirectly. So, uh, you know, we do a lot of things. We, we do supplier days. So we'll go to Darlington and Pickering, uh, CNL, the Canadian Na National Laboratory, uh, Nuclear Laboratory, sorry, and as well as Bruce Power. We'll engage and allow our members to be right on site talking to the people that actually work in those facilities uh, and utilities. So those are really well received. I look at us as kind of a, a network broker. If, if someone's looking to get into nuclear, how do I connect? We'll help you do that. If you're already existing, but you want new markets, we'll help to do that. And we also do trade missions internationally, typically about five a year, and also host other countries coming into Canada to say, how, how do you do this technology so well? How are you champions of nuclear? So those are kind of the predominant areas of what we do, but we'll serve in any capacity. Uh, I was just out in New Brunswick, actually, in Atlantic Canada uh, this past week, at uh, the Canadian uh, Nuclear uh, Conference, and again, linking people, linking the ability, and there's such an upswing, uh, you know, the re-energization of nuclear is so exciting right now. So I took lots of people and, and connected the dots to various components, and that's really how I look at what we do. We are going to play an integral really rule going forward to make sure we can put all the nuclear in place that's needed to achieve our net zero targets. Yeah, no, well, listen, we're going to talk a bit about that, that sort of energy pardon the pun, that, that renaissance we're in right now. But I, I want people to know the impact. I, I talked about 80,000 uh, jobs attributable to the technology and the services uh, in Canada. We're talking jobs that are highly skilled, technical, well-paying jobs. What's the economic footprint of this sector and your members on the Acad Canadian economy? Do you have a, a ballpark on that? 
Yeah, I, I don't have the exact number. It, it's billions here. And, and again, just in your region of Durham, we had an Invest Durham and, and had a number of the companies in and the municipalities that are impacted. And to your point, I mean, it really is a huge economic engine for our country, uh, certainly for our province, but really for our country as well. And with the advent of, of more nuclear coming in, in Atlantic Canada, certainly possibly in Western Canada, it's going to continue to grow. And those jobs, as you say, very well paid, uh, you know, very innovative. There's what I, one thing that we're really trying to do is re-promote, frankly, to the people looking at their career sectors and say nuclear is a thriving industry to join. And there's going to be a long runway um, to be able to have a, a well-paying, sustainable and satisfactory, uh, satisfactory career. So huge, huge impacts. It is. And and you've been in the role uh, just about uh, almost a year. I remember when it was announced last year, I was so, so happy because you were a natural fit, having worked in the sector, having been such a strong advocate in your public service. But talk a little bit about the heritage, because when I started the Federal Nuclear Caucus years ago and, and started working with OCNI, the C was not Canada. It was CANDU. It was the organization of CANDU Industries in Canada. Talk talk about that heritage, and really the role CANDU Technology played in creating our industry, creating your uh, your organization. I know you're technology agnostic now, but that that CANDU heritage we have as a country, the really the second country to have controlled peaceful use of of nuclear fission, it really is incredible. So can you talk for a moment about that CANDU legacy? Happy to. So truly a big piece of Canadian heritage and one that we should all be proud of because it really has provided clean, uh, reliable, affordable energy to all of us. So whether it's your long-term care facility, the arena, your house, the, the library, uh, Capitol Hill, all of that energy is provided, a, a big chunk of that by CanDo Technology, which again, as you have so, so clearly illustrated, has su such an impact in our communities. I, I mean, all of those little companies or big companies that are supporting our, our economics have played a critical role. And that can-do technology has allowed us to be a leader, frankly, uh, for, for 50 years, safely, I, I might add. And, and that's one of the things that we always hear. It also now has, you know, there, there's a rebirth from the re revitalization. So Bruce Power is refurbishing their units. Darlington is refurbishing and extending the life of. So an existing asset that you can actually go in and, and retool to give it another life extension. Very cost effective, very economical and, and very safe. So you know, in a time now where we're looking at more energy and every day we're plugging more things in our phones and everything else, uh, you know, the decarbonization report that came out in, in December that was released by IESO is saying we're going to need to double our nuclear footprint to be able to achieve our net zero goals of 2050. Uh, can do, I believe, and to your point, we are technology agnostic. There's lots of good developments that have happened. But I think, again, we have a really unique thing that is Canadian. 95% of the components are created in Canada. Uh, they're, they're something to be very proud of. And, and one thing, Aaron, that I am really, really have always been a big champion excited about, the, the can-do technology also allows us to harvest isotopes, life-saving medical isotopes from our can-do um, reactors. And, and, and that even has had a recent innovation. You used to have to wait for the actual turbine and, and the unit to be shut down to be able to harvest. So once a year, they now have with Kinetrix and Framatone, both Bruce Power and OPG can do this while they're actually still firing their, while, yeah. while the reactor's still running. So that 
you know, what I really am trying to get through people, if you had to wait in the last little while for cancer um, surgery or cancer treatment, that was partly because you could only harvest so often. It's so exciting to see that now we can do that online. And I, I, I was just at a Bruce Power Supplier Day yesterday. They actually said they just did a trial harvest online and they actually harvested more than they had in the past year in that one time. And, and we can do this continuously. So, uh, you know, those people that are again, you're even naysayers, Tell me you don't want your grandmother, your daughter, your wife, your son saved as a result of a medical isotope and, and can do technology is at the forefront of that. It is exciting. I, James Gagnac, a previous guest, took took me through the, the isotope project at, at Bruce which is also in partnership with First Nation. So it's it's kind of an example of corporate social responsibility, environmental stewardship, health, innovation. It's pretty exciting. And you we've alluded to this excitement, this energy, this renaissance. It's why it, uh, old friends like us are talking. Let, let, let's talk about that for a moment and really just the opportunity for Canada because we, we have our, our tremendous heritage of innovation with CanDo. We talked about that. We have the supply network. We're, we're going to speak to Moltex, one of your members from New Brunswick, Rory O'Sullivan, about technology that allows using some of the spent fuel uh, again to to obtain more more energy and some of the technology that your, your customers are bringing. But Canada is also a world leader in uranium, in the fuel here, and and Cameco and their recent deal with Brookfield and Cameco's ability to step in and help the situation in Ukraine to give a de democratic, reliable supply of, of uranium. Talk about the total offering that Canada has, because I think we're really the only country in the world that has developed intellectual property has several generations of experience uh, through our workers of generating large-scale uh, uh, electricity for the grid. We have world-class regulation. We have the fuel. Talk about this opportunity for Canada and our ambitions globally. Absolutely. And, and you've touched on a lot of them. I mean, we truly are a global leader and something that we should be as proud as Canadians as we possibly can be, you know, right from the technology of can do to the fuel that you say at chemical and, you know, that geopolitical situation between Russia and Ukraine, you know, that's opened up the doors to really um, rejuvenate, frankly, the fuel industry. And, you know, for many years, I, I, I'm told Russia kind of had a big part of that market and chemical was certainly a, a thriving company and doing well, but they really didn't know how they could proceed and expand to the to the degree they are. Bruce Power just signed a 40-year fuel agreement with them, which again shows that that runway that I spoke of earlier is there, that this is real, this is going to happen. And that gives confidence to many of our other member com com companies to join in and say, if they're going to sign those type of agreements, we can now move forward without uh, as much trepidation as we had in the past. So between the technology, uh, the ability and the fuel source, we really are the world leader. And now, as you referenced, we've got Moltex and ARC in, in Eastern Canada looking at some very innovative ways to do the small modular reactor. Uh, of course, OPG in Ontario has signed on to purchase and, and actually build the very first small modular reactor at GE Hitachi BWXR 300. Um, that is going to be replicated potentially in the West. They're looking at, at some in Saskatchewan. And again, I think once we get one of them landed, once this one in, in Darlington is landed, that's going to take off. 
Westinghouse again is coming along with their version. So there's a multitude of different versions that are out there. And then I think you're going to see again with that requirement of more nuclear, you're going to see more large new nuclear builds uh, coming along the pipeline as well. So it, it really just puts us in good stead across all those different areas. And the innovation sector, I think, again, to be able to look at Bruce Powers ability to actually increase what they can put out in megawatts uh, is significantly they're, they're gearing to get to 7,000 megawatts uh, because of technology and innovation and the very talented people right across the spectrum of nuclear from the engineering side to the planning. Uh, I, I'm just so excited about what, what's sitting in front of us. Sky's the limit, really. I, I am, too, that now that we even have the odd liberal MP showing some support for the, the sector. I've said this many times, not going to belabor it, but I was shocked that when they came back from the Paris conference and Mr. McKenna and the, the prime minister never spoke about the importance of this sector in our long term electricity plans in a lower carbon future. Like there's no way we meet our original 30% Paris targets, but for investment in nuclear. Add on that the EV standard and all the demands on our grid, unless we're gonna start firing up coal like they're doing in Germany, we've got to make sure we invest. So it's been great to see uh, really on the center left, some of the public uh, mood change. Cameco, I'm gonna stay there for a moment just because What's incredible, when I went to Seoul to help finalize the, the first free trade agreement Canada had in Asia, a country where we lost over 500 men in the Korean War, and, and they love Canada for that commitment, I was amazed that one of our largest exports to Korea at the time came from right next door to my riding in Port Hope, Cameco, because Korea is a can-do user. And so the fuel for uh, their generating station came from Port Hope, Ontario, Cameco in northern Saskatchewan is one of the largest indigenous employers in the country. So these resource and extractive opportunities can be important for climate change, but also important in terms of economic uh, reconciliation and business development and, and jobs for rural Canada. So do you see this this renaissance for nuclear actually helping us come up with long-term climate change plans that wide swaths of the public agree on? Absolutely. And, and I think your first comment says it all. I mean, the, the federal liberal government has has moved significantly in the last budget and actually, uh, I think, recognizing, frankly, to achieve their own goals. They're... Uh, yeah. Minister O'Regan, Mr. Reagan said, O'Regan said, you know, you can't achieve this without nuclear. So right from the, you know, the inside of their camp, and they came. And I think this just bodes well. Uh, I toured into uh, Europe last year with Minister Smith from the Ontario government, Minister of Energy, and again, Poland alone, what they're looking at doing and what they need, and that that energy security uh, to be able to, frankly, phase out of coal in countries like Poland and and the natural realistic. Uh, replacement is going to be nuclear, I believe. And that gives them, again, security. It gives them good paying jobs. It gives them reliable, safe energy, which is great for the environment. So yeah, I, I see this bodes very well. We have reactors, as you re mentioned, in Korea. We have them in uh, Romania. And again, you know, not only the refurbishment of there, but again, potential for new build in those countries. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was at OPG with an Australian delegation actually there asking, it was actually the uh, 
opposition government uh, of Australia looking and exploring, again, opportunities for potentially some nuclear in those countries. And I really noted when we went to Europe with Minister Smith, how many countries uh, Estonia has signed on wanting to get into the nuclear field, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, you know, and I think this is just the start once people again really lock into kind of like the federal liberals that if, if we're really going to do this, people that used to be stalwart people against nuclear are saying we came to the realization this is the only way that we truly environmentally get there. And there's all those other benefits that you and I have talked about, the economics, the health care, the good paying jobs, and that sustainability for our small communities or large communities, frankly. But a lot of our businesses are in small rural uh, communities that they are the, the lifeblood of that community. 100%. And I think the more people know how critical any modern climate change plan is to include nuclear, the, the, the left and some of the voices can no longer ignore the reality. Now that we're getting closer to 2030, Mr. Trudeau keeps inc increasing his carbon tax and other things, but not making the targets. So finally, Seamus O'Regan, to his credit, uh, and a few other liberals have spoken up. And I think the mood is changing because they're staring reality in their face. So let's, we've talked about the climate change aspect, the reliability, the, the cost advantage over the long term, the great jobs, the trade opportunities. Let's talk about SMRs and micromodular and this new excitement, certainly I'm very proud of Darlington and as you said, the the new SMR going in there. But what do these smaller uh, generate, generating units provide in terms of flexibility? You know, we think of the Bruce, we think of Darlington as the sort of base load generators for a, a G7 country and, and Southern Ontario, the sort of economic uh, lifeblood of a lot of the country. Um, what do these new forms of the technology uh, give us options on? And do they eliminate some of the, the concern about cost or complexity, these sorts of things? Yeah, and I think the whole intent of those, Aaron, again, that modular aspect. So many of them, again, can be built, components can be built off-site, and then you, you ship them, you deliver them to site. You can, you can actually build them quicker. One of the big concerns for many years, of course, was the cost and, and on-time, on-budget delivery. These innovations and, and new ways of building are going to allow that. Uh, I think the components, they've been able to, uh, again, scientifically and, and truly with engineering, go in and say, we can take some of those components that you need in the much larger for, for all kinds of different reasons. You don't need them in the same manner, so you can build them in a smaller capacity. Some of those components, they're, they're actually equally safe or safer in some aspects uh, because they, again, keep enhancing the ability with innovation. So that's really an exciting component there. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the one going into Darlington is, is going to be a 300 megawatt, which will power about 300,000 homes. Um, so again, if you look at various places, you, you don't necessarily need 1,200 megawatts in one place. They are scalable. So in Darlington's particular case, they have license and capability to take four of them and basically connect them together. Um, once you get beyond that, you're probably better to go from economies of scale and all of the other things back to the large nuclear. But if you have a, a community that's 600,000 that doesn't have a reliable source or they're only a coal source, for example, you can put one or two of those units in. You can utilize existing infrastructure. So again, it's relatively, in my mind, seamless. And, and that's really what we were talking about in Poland is they really want to take their coal offline and, and, and you know get rid of using it. So you can place one of those 300 megawatt 
SMRs into a community there, again, gives them their, their security, energy security. They're displacing what they're having now with an even cleaner, better technology, reliable technology, and the jobs that go with it. And, and I think that's going to you know, continue to foster innovation. And, and again, our Canadian companies are leaders across the board. The, the micromodular reactor is up to about 10 uh, megawatts, which again makes it very uh, enticing for particularly our rural and, and willing First Nations communities if they were so choose. Now you're not flying in diesel. Now you're not burning diesel. Now you have your self-contained energy power unit that's right there in those communities that gives them the ability to either yeah, provide heat and or energy. So things like how they would grow their own vegetables, for example, their own food, because you can now look at, you've got that reliable base load and you're not again burning, you know, uh, diesel and, 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 and all the planes back. I, I just, the, the exciting thing for me is how we can frankly transform communities uh, to a much safer, more reliable and let them be more self-reliant because of the technology of those two or three different versions of, of SMRs and micromodular SMRs. Yeah, the flexibility is incredible. I, I, I led or co-led a, a study on Arctic sovereignty years ago, and I made sure part of our study and our recommendations explored the energy security for northern communities, Inuit communities, which, as you said, rely on diesel. And in the Arctic bill, they have to keep two years worth of diesel on site in case ice flows or their shipping problems uh, don't allow the diesel shipment to get up there. So here are this environmental disaster waiting to happen, these huge storage of, of diesel just to keep the lights on, where a micro modular option uh, would allow a small little grid in these communities to be, to be set up emission-free, easy to run and long term after end of life, very easy to to sort of um, you know, decommission. So the the flexibility for for these micromodular and SMRs as part of the the sort of eco ecosystem of of low emission power sources allows big cities and and the golden horseshoe of southern ontario a remote uh, inuit community or a mining site in a very Absolutely. remote area where you can't get transmission in so i think if we use the renaissance to bowl over some of the the sort of naysayers on this technology. It gives us so many options to not just get away from uh, more carbon intense forms of energy. It helps us provide power to and energy security to communities that right now in modern Canada don't really have a serious plan. Absolutely. And, and you've touched on a very important one that I hadn't alluded to yet is, is that whole mining sector. So again, the ability to produce the, the steam or the energy that you need to, to be able to extract other things, you're now not burning fossil fuels to do that. You're, you're giving them the opportunity to be green operators. And many of them, frankly, are very much embracing the, the opportunity and the ability. The oil sands in, in the West, uh, you know, there's discussions going on again now for them to be able to switch technology to become much greener in their operation, which again, just it behooves all of us to, to support that. Yeah, I, I was really proud to see the, the leadership at the provincial level when there was an absence of leadership federally from Premier Ford, Premier Kenny, Premier Moe, Premier Higgs, you know, having this 
quartet of, of provincial players looking at SMR options, looking at technology and supply chain networks, your members from Ontario helping perhaps put something in Fort McMurray. I think there's there's such great potential long term and we're finally having the conversations to to make it happen. And I think that's dragging along the federal government. I, I still think Guy Bo, the, the former activist, is not a fan of this technology, but Seamus and a few others are are pushing. I think Mark Carney's public statements have been important to, to some of the business-minded liberals uh, who, who really aren't enamored with this government either. But I, these conversations are important. That's why uh, I've been writing on it. That's why I had James and why I'm having Rory O'Sullivan uh, to compliment yours, one of your members. So I'm not going to put you on the spot. We're going to talk to Moltex and some of that keen innovation, New Brunswick uh, base, the IP held in Canada. You've got so many members. I'd like you to talk about uh, one in Ontario and one from outside to sort of give people a sense of some of the innovators, some of the entrepreneurs and some of the Canadian workers that are not only ready to fuel this expansion of nuclear in Canada, but to to take our ambition global and to really make sure that we remain, you know, technology and service leaders for the technologies. So pick a couple and we'll close with you selling the virtues. I know you love all your members, Bill. You, you know, you'll always be a great politician, but name a couple to let people know that this isn't just Bruce and and Kinetrix and some of the bigger players that people might know. Talk about one or two that you think might illuminate our conversation. Well, I think again, Aaron, you, you've already referenced Moltex and Art both, and, and and they're different in what they're going to do. But you know, one of the exciting things in in the East is they're looking at actually re uh, reutilizing the, the the fuel. So again, that's exciting to me that you can get rid of what people are deeming to be waste. Well, it's really a fuel source, and just not capitalized on and not leveraged as much as it can. So, you know, quite excited. It's a ways down the road. It's obviously innovative. It's groundbreaking. There's a lot of things that have to happen. But I think anything where you can utilize an already existing, what I'm going to call as an asset, because if we haven't used it all and, and, and maximized, you have that alternative. So I think both of those technologies in the East, we've we've actually hired someone locally down there through a COA funding through the federal government to have boots on the ground in the Eastern Canada to be able to start to develop a supply chain there. So we're ready when they're ready. Uh, again, as you mentioned, Premier Higgs has, has been very forceful there and standing up and part of that, that four uh, members of, of uh, Premiers uh, that committed and, and that, that's very exciting. Uh, you know, closer to home, there's a number of them. There, there's uh, certainly, as I mentioned earlier, the GE Hitachi is already you know been chosen and it went through quite a lengthy process. I think there were over a hundred different types of SMRs and they chose that. Part of that is because the technology, the licensing, the the CNSE, which you say, the Canadian Nuclear Regulator, which is world class, had already given them the ability to move because it's it's the same technology virtually that we've used successfully for 50 years. So you know you're going to have. Darlington, you're going to have uh, Saskatchewan have already agreed to the same technology. Tennessee Valley is, is looking at multitudes. Uh, and again, Jeff Lyash, the CEO 
used to be at OPG, he's buying it. So now you're starting to see people talk about fleets of reactors. And again, that economies of scale when you're building. Westinghouse with the eVinci, and I think, uh, you know, there are a couple of other of, of the big players that are partnering there to look at it. Uh, doing some of the research reactors again, that, that again just allows us. McMaster University and, and Chalk River have had research reactors forever, which we haven't really talked a lot about, but having those and the ability to continue to enhance and improve and innovate, uh, again, just to me, I think you use the term, the sky's the limit, really. Uh, maybe that's back to your Air Force world and, and, and always <laughs> wanting to be a high flyer. Uh, you know, there's certainly the ability there, I think, with all of our technologies. And, and, and you're right, I, I certainly try to be a technology agnostic. I think they can all fill different special needs and special interests. But I think what I'm hearing, and I hear this from many of the people that have been around the industry a long time, they haven't seen this type of partnership and collaboration at all levels, whether it be the industry, government, the public, all jumping on and rowing in the same stream that people have came to the to the realization, if we're going to hit our environmental goals, nuclear is going to be at the forefront of that. The world needs more Canada, and that needs Absolutely. to be more than that needs to be more than just a slogan on the wall at the Indigo bookstores. Um, it needs to be for our energy security and our future over the next fifty years. Use Canadian energy in terms of hydrocarbons and oil and gas, which is high SG, uh, Indigenous partnerships, ethically sourced, as well as as we decarbonize over decades more Canadian nuclear, large generation source, SMRs, the supply network, and of course the fuel. Really proud of what Cameco is doing in Ukraine, doing with economic reconciliation with indigenous uh, communities and, and businesses. The sky is the limit and it's an exciting time for you to lead this organization in Canada, uh, Bill. But I'm gonna end with an important personal question. As a guy who's down to his final weeks of politics, Bill Walker, is there life after politics? Aaron O'Toole, for you, there's always life because you're a stellar leader. You're <laughs> going to have skills that anybody should welcome. Your integrity, your commitment to Canada and, and the service that you provide again in your military career and, and in your uh, political career and your community career, frankly. So there's lots of life. I'm excited to see what the next chapter writes for, for Aaron. And I want to have that uh, that little visit with you and Johnny O'Toole to talk about that. And anything I can do to support a guy like you, I'm always in your corner. Well, listen, my dad loves you. I love you. Uh, my former chief of staff, Tasha, loves you. You know, we'll have to all get together for a bad round of golf and a few wee drams afterwards. But it, I was glad to be able to to celebrate your public service with your community last year. You were truly loved. Um, and to have you be able to champion so many of the workers that you once represented as constituents now as part of this, uh, this sector, it is such an exciting time to be in the sector in Canada. I want to see us take that ambition globally. Uh, we've got leadership position. We shouldn't accept being middle of the pack. We shouldn't accept kind of mediocrity, which I'm seeing sort of entrenched here in Ottawa. So really happy you're in the job. Really fortunate you were able to blue, skies, uh, blue sky this with us today. Thank you, Bill Walker. Honored and humbled. All the best, my friend. Thank you. Cheers. What a fascinating conversation with Bill Walker, the CEO, president of the Organization of Canadian Nuclear Industries. Next, we're going to have one of his member companies, Moltex, and their CEO, Rory O'Sullivan, 
talk to us about their intellectual property development in Canada, their technology that can actually use some of the spent fuel, extract more energy out of it, and add to the to the nuclear ecosystem we're developing in Canada. Exciting technology. So we're really happy to go to one of his members next. Welcome to Blue Skies. This is the third in an ongoing series on energy and specific nuclear energy and why it's so important for Canadian and global energy security, but also the global fight against climate change. How will nations keep their high industrial energy output? How will the developed world grow in a way that we keep emissions low? We started this series with Bruce Power and James Gagnac. Uh, we then spoke to Bill Walker and the Organization of Canadian Nuclear Industries. And today we're fortunate to be joined by one of the innovative members of OCNI. Moltex. And we have its CEO today, Rory O'Sullivan, joining us from St. John, New Brunswick. Now, Rory is from Ireland. Uh, this is the O'Toole and O'Sullivan uh, hour, you could say today. He's a graduate of Trinity College in Dublin, also a graduate of INSEAD in France. He was a Forbes 30 under 30 and developed an expertise in nuclear physics. And then particularly salt, molten salt technology and its opportunities. And so thank you for joining Blue Skies, Rory O'Sullivan. Hello, Aaron. Great to be here. Honored. Thank you. Um, so we usually do a bit of a bio, which I've done, but your story is an interesting one, Rory, because, you know, you have an engineering background, that technical background. You had an interest in energy, but as you've told me before, you graduated Trinity College, got into working in energy, but in, in a renewable form in wind, and you were originally sort of anti or skeptical about the contribution of, of nuclear Talk about that personal evolution, what drew you into energy, and then what drew you into physics uh, and and where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. So when I uh, was studying, I studied mechanical engineering, as you said, in, in Dublin, and I was really passionate about energy. I wanted to make an impact on climate change and um in Ireland, I graduated anti-nuclear kind of just because everybody else was anti-nuclear in Ireland. I was really a bit apprehensive about the usual reasons that most people are against nuclear. And that's cost, safety, and the waste. And, and we'll come to those those points later. Um, and so I went, and in the summer, I went and got a job on a wind farm because Ireland was one of the early early adopters on wind. And I spent the summer on a remote site down in the west of Ireland in Cork. And it was very interesting. It was a great experience, but huge swathes of land were really not quite destroyed, but taken up. You know, uh, very iconic land was uh, big roads were taken through it. And at the time, the turbines were only two or three megawatts. The cost was very mm -hmm. significant. And although even then we were seeing that the wind, the cost and in the installation was getting, uh, the costs were getting cheaper. Deeper, it was a long, long way to go before wind could really solve our problems. So I went away and a bit dismayed and uh, was kind of thought renewables weren't the future. Nuclear wasn't the answer. So I got out of energy and went into construction project management in London and had a lot of fun. And then it was kind of about eight or 10 years after that. 
I came across the concept of molten salt reactors. And that's when I realized, hang on here, maybe there might be some avenue to nuclear which can really solve the traditional problems. With molten salt reactors, liquid fuel reactors, you really have the potential to deal with the safety that's eliminate that fundamental hazard with nuclear power. You can deal with the waste and get potentially very low-cost electricity. And so I went and spent a lot of evenings uh, studying molten salt reactor and nuclear physics, and I, and I got just got absolutely hooked. I uh, got all in and, um, and then eventually got involved with Multex that was starting up. But back then, I would meet people who have a PhD in nuclear physics and they'd never even heard of molten salt reactors. It was completely unheard of. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of, you know, 2013, 14, 15. It wasn't until about 2017 people started to hear and actually know what they are. Yeah, that's a great personal journey. Um, you went from skeptic to evangelist uh, in, in a way. Right. And I've seen TED Talks from uh, from environmental um consultants that have gone in the similar trajectory, realizing all energies have their pros and cons. And when you start adding those up, the, the, the pros for nuclear are, are incredible. And so with the molten salt reactor, I'm going to get you to explain the technology in a moment, but you talked about the benefit and why you became particularly interested uh, in this form of, of nuclear physics in this form of, of generation. And you mentioned the waste and, and the safety and the cost. Obviously, the big two scares that a lot of people have uh, of the technology are based in the 50s origin and, and the Cold War is the what to do with these barrels of waste, you know, the, the portrayal on the Simpsons television show, that sort of uh, uh, sense that there's tragedy around the corner and, and the, the concept of, of a meltdown um, and, you know, Three Mile Island or, or some of the media portrayals we've seen of the technology. Talk about the technology for molten salt, but also why it eliminates those risks and what was so attractive to you about this form of technology. Yeah, um, sure. And and actually, maybe just kind of merging into that, when I got into nuclear power, I was actually uh, quite against most of the conventional forms of nuclear power. Um, and, it, and, and then it wasn't until I really got embedded with the industry and really learned about the incredible job that the industry has done on making the plants absolutely unequivocally safe. I mean, nuclear is statistically by far the safest form of energy mm-hmm. generation. And the cases that I was looking into to make my um, judgments and assumptions on the economics of nuclear power were really very um, special, isolated cases where it has been very expensive. But generally, like look at the case of Canada, nuclear is extremely affordable and absolutely underpins the low-cost electricity that Canadians have. Um, so now couldn't be a bigger fan of all types of nuclear, molten salts included. But um, the reason why molten salts are, are quite special is that the, the fundamental hazard with nuclear power is a meltdown, and that can release a, a large amount of radioactivity in a severe accident. As I said, the industry has been has done a very good job of making sure that really can almost never happen. But in a molten salt reactor, the concept of a meltdown just doesn't apply. You don't have the hazard of that large kind of 
explosion of radioactive gas. So that instantly makes them inherently more safe. And so that can simplify your plants. Of course, there's you know safety features, and we have to make sure it absolutely is is, is safe to the same standards. But um, it, it it starts off with a simpler hazard to contain. And mm-hmm. so in our case, we use, most reactors have pellets, small pellets about the size of your fingernail, in pins. So in a, in the U.S., typically they're in long vertical pins, a few meters long. In Canada, they're they're in horizontal pins about a foot long in a can-do bundle. Well, what we have is the long vertical pins, but instead of the solid pellets of uranium, we have a liquid fuel salt. So it's the same fissile material. All the physics is the same. The nuclear reaction is the same, but it's in a, a different chemical form which is in a, in a liquid, and it's actually a salt. So if you take a regular table salt and, and heat it up to about 400 degrees Celsius, it'll turn into a, a liquid, and that's what we do. So we mix the, the nuclear material in with pretty much regular salt, so like table salt, and that becomes our fuel. So um, the, the, we have hazards that we're trying to maintain to make sure don't happen, but uh, fundamentally, yeah, you've eliminated that risk of a, of a meltdown. The second benefit, coming back to your way, sorry, there, is no, um, go ahead. in this liquid fuel salt, one of the secondary benefits is we can have huge levels of impurities in this liquid fuel salt. And so with conventional fuel, you need extremely high purities and very high tolerances to make sure the fuel pellet is absolutely safe and stable in huge to withstand huge pressures and, and different accident conditions. Well, we, we don't have those requirements. So what it means is we can now take existing nuclear waste, recycle it along with all the various radioactive elements that are included, that put them all into our fuel, that liquid fuel salt, and our reactor can use that as energy. In the process of it using that waste as energy, we're essentially eliminating the long-lived transuranics. That's all the artificial elements above uranium on the periodic table. We can convert them into energy, and they're literally eliminated, destroyed as they are produced. So you're taking transuranic elements that are radioactive for about 300,000 years. When we have used them in the reactor, converted them to energy, Einstein's equation, E equals MC squared, you're literally turning matter into energy, you get left with shorter-lived fission products, so things like lead and more normal elements, but um, that have a shorter activity, typically 100, 200 years. And so that's the big model. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to reduce the amount of waste that we're leaving to future generations and getting a fuel source while we're at it. So with the molten salt, you can kind of repurpose the waste. And so it, it, it would be the most efficient means of using fissionable materials. Would that be fair to say one of the big draws of the technology? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, we're really the only um, the only small modular reactor company now looking at recycling spent fuel. We think it's uh, you know it's the Achilles has always been the Achilles heel of the industry. So we want to address that first and, and really enable the rest of the rest of the industry to excel. Now I want to emphasize, um, although we are 
destroying these long-lived transuranics. We can't get rid of everything. This is not a magic technology. There will still be some waste left at the end. For example, when we shut down the reactor, there's still the spent fuel and radioactive material in the, in the, in the reactor then that we need to get rid of. So there's still the need for a deep geological repository. We're mm-hmm. just trying to make their lives easier than making it smaller, more cost-effective and safer, and just reducing that hazard for future generations. So do you really envision your small modular reactors working in unison with the existing fleet of, of CANDUs and, and uh, you know, potentially others in Canada where there's a second round of, of use of, of waste or spent fuel? Or would you also be Greenfield where you would be uh, a mixture of two? Or are you part of that ecosystem uh, of of generation and maximize or minimizing the the waste. Yeah, we we see ourselves as the nuclear uh, enablers, I suppose. So there's, um, I think it's 19 reactors in Canada at the moment. It's about 12,000 megawatts of of, um, of power being produced by the Candu fleet. Well, with the spent fuel from those reactors, we can run about half the amount of power at least. That's with very Hmm. conservative assumptions. So that's with 12 gigawatts, we can produce at least six gigawatts of power from our reactors for 60 years. And as we progress the calculations, it looks like it might even be more up to nine or even 10 gigawatts. With the the US fleet, it's not quite as efficient. It's about a one to three ratio rather than Canada. It's about a one to two ratio. But that's what the existing can do. So yes, we see ourselves working in conjunction with can-dos to get more efficiency out of those the fuel and, and reduce the waste but we can do the same for smrs so with the spent fuel from almost any smr we can take that and create more clean energy again reducing that waste legacy issue for future generations um fascinating what about um we were always talking about the decommissioning of of uh, nuclear weapons and, and and enriched products, like would you be able to um, use those materials as well in a molten salt reactor? So um, we don't need any enriched uh, uranium. So if um, so, just kind of explain, give the background here. The Canadian technology can do reactors don't require any enriched That's uranium. Right. They can just use natural uranium. Many or even most of the new SMRs need low enriched uranium or let's say medium enriched uranium. What's called HALU, around twenty percent. Um, we we our only fuel source is the existing spent fuel. So for example, in New Brunswick, we're looking at building a 300 megawatt reactor for the first one. Our waste recycling facility will be on site beside the existing can-do fleet. And the only source of fuel we need is already sitting on site at Point La Perot with the spent fuel. Um, so we could look at redesigning the reactor for other fuel sources, but we're really focused on on the waste piece and dealing with that first. Maybe in the future we can look at other other fuel sources, but um, that's what it is. In terms of the proliferation um, question you, you asked about, this is um, that is often brought up as a risk um, because handling and treating spent fuel 
has been used in the past to produce weapons and for other purposes. Uh, typically, governments have used this back in the in, in in the 50s. That is a very different process to what we're tr- we're doing. We are um, our process cannot produce weapons grade material. And in fact, once we have used the original spent fuel and specifically the plutonium and spent fuel in our reactor, it's destroyed. Future generations can no longer no longer use it. So ultimately, we're really destroy- eliminating the hazard uh, once it's once it's been used and the and the reactor life is up. So it sounds incredibly promising, but why do most people, even people that may know this sector, nuclear, why why have they may not have heard of molten salt? And there have been some trials and test reactors, I believe. But what makes what set, sets Moltex apart? Are you able? Have you had a proof of concept, or where are you at? And what what is unique about the Moltex technology? Yeah, well, there's lots of um, theories and opinions about why molten salt reactors uh, weren't um, produced. One of them is that it's actually when the nuclear area started and the U.S. were developing nuclear power technologies, um, they were looking for sources of, you know, a dual use of of them to produce weapons. And a molten salt reactor is not very good at that. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the truth or not, but you do often hear that. One of the challenges with conventional molten salt reactors is you have um, the liquid fuel pumped around a circuit. So it's pumped through the core and then around heat exchangers and pumps. And this is a third of the periodic table going through all of your components. So you do get extensive corrosion and that was quite hard to manage. They did find they were able to manage it through the test reactors. The test reactor ran as as planned and effectively, um, but that's other reasons why they were quite complicated. What's different about ours and our unique Canadian IP is that we have the molten salt liquid fuel in conventional fuel pins. And that's what our master patent is with granted patents in most major nations, uh, unpumped molten salt reactors. That's uh, anybody who wants to have a molten salt reactor that doesn't pump it around the circuit. That's our that's our IP, which is fully Canadian. That's outstanding. And so why Canada? Is it the partnership with the CANDU and, and being that complementary part of the of the of the fuel cycle, because I do know you developed the technology in the UK. Is that correct? Talk about your Canadian IP and and why an Irishman named O'Sullivan sitting in St. John, New Brunswick. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, we have a, there's a partnership that works very well with can do, but the technology is, is just as applicable to, you know, all all commercial reactors today, as in most SMIs. Um, so yeah, the the technology was invented in the UK. The inventor is Ian Scott, a prolific inventor. He has, I think now it's up to about eight hundred patents to his name. Um, and I came and joined him, you know, sort of when he was coming in, in his basement, essentially, and and we took it together as a as a company. And we looked. This is around 2015. We looked at all the different countries where it would be best to deploy this innovative technology, and we had ranking criteria on how fast could it be deployed, where it has the best, most credible regulatory environment, and Canada came out on top. And the reasons Canada came out on top were it has stable support of nuclear policy. So there's a credible nuclear supply chain, there's a nuclear history, it's got all the fundamentals to be able to develop new technology. It is looking to decarbonize. So there's a supportive policy for nuclear and clean energy. 
there is a very um, excellent regulatory framework for any nuclear power, but specifically advanced nuclear, innovative nuclear power. If if you look at the US, it has a lot of advantages, there's a lot of money thrown at the sector, but they have a regulatory system that needs complete overhaul to be able to do any innovative advanced nuclear. In addition, there is a market and technology neutral customers that are interested in progressing nuclear power. So it was around um, 2016, Late 2017, we started working, uh, talking to the CNSC, and it was in 2018 when New Brunswick Power, the first utility in the West to start looking at SMRs, that picked us and ARC. And it was at the same time we were looking at at moving to Canada and setting up operations there. So it was just a really good fit. We moved and set up our operations in New Brunswick, transferred all of our IP here, and now all of our IP in our headquarters in St. John, New Brunswick. So exports of this technology will be from New Brunswick in Canada. And we have, uh, as far as I know, well, I think the only technology, but we have no uh, requirements or restrictions from other governments, no requirements to manufacture any components from other governments. This is entirely a Canadian export. Fascinating. Uh, a great story, actually. And so you have the strategic partnership with New Brunswick Power. Um, engineering giant SNC-Lavalin um, is a partner and has uh, some an equity stake in the business. And you've been establishing partnerships and, and and trial work with OPG, Ontario Power Generation. So there's been some exciting opportunity and growth. You've got a team uh, up about 35 on the ground in New Brunswick. What is your vision for the next five to 10 years? Um, when do you see you uh, generating some power with molten salt with your technology in New Brunswick? And what's your vision for the next decade plus? Yeah, so we're um, we're not going to be the first to market. We're probably the most advanced innovative uh, technology out there that's the most disruptive. Our waste recycling facility, Watts is the name of it, um, is planned to be online around the same time as the first SMRs. And that is a, a you know a big a huge achievement in itself. It's a it's a it's a it's a big facility, first of its kind. And we're not going to build a reactor in in parallel at the same time. We're going to build that after. So that'll be a, a few years after the, the waste recycling is up and running. We also need to be producing the fuel for the reactor. But in terms of the next five years, the what we've been doing up to now is all the sort of benchtop lab university testing. So we have our own facilities where we're using um, uranium and sim fuel to test the waste recycling. And we're doing corrosion tests and heat transfer tests. And we have different molten salt loops. We're also doing that with some of the US nuclear labs, various Canadian universities to really demonstrate the fundamentals of the technology and and make sure that we can make these claims with robust backing. And over the next few years, it's really a scale up of those tests. So at the moment, we're, you know, we've done everything. um, We've done the first level of tests and then they just get scaled up bigger and bigger and more integrated until we get into full licensing and have everything absolutely evidence before we get into construction of the main, main reactor. You know, this is the right thing to do anyway, but nuclear is so heavily regulated, you have to have absolutely everything tested and demonstrated before you can even contemplate building a, building a reactor. And so there's a lot of big test loops um, and test facilities we need to do. That's where all the work is. The hardest part to date hasn't been the technology, it's been getting the really effective, brilliant team in place. 
Mm-hmm. The uh, there's a um, there's a shortage of 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 really high skilled uh, people, and that I think will be their biggest challenge over the next five years is getting is building the team to be able to do this. So that's one of the reasons we have the partnership with SNC Lavalin is to help us um, expand the team faster, and they, they've been a great asset to date. And once you scale up in Canada, there's the opportunity to take this global and to have this technology complement, as you said, other fleets um, in terms of decarbonization, uh, energy from waste in, in, in many ways. Um, you see a lot of other export opportunities down the road. We do, and this will be a collaboration um, across the Canada, the US, and the UK. So we have a, a team in the UK. Some of our, our 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 lab work is happening in the UK. We have people across uh, the US, particularly in the labs. So it really will be um, a collaboration across the three, but but led by Canada, of course. Um, in terms of export, we are very much focused on the waste owners. So utilities around the world that have a spent fuel issue, they're the ones we're interested. So, you know, the ones that have the biggest, the longest nuclear power history, U.S. has 25% of global spent fuel stockpiles. So obviously the first country we want to be going into after the Canada. The U.K. has a lot of spent fuel. France, you know, Ukraine, I think is sixth uh, highest. Um, South Korea, Japan, the big, the big nuclear operators are the targets of interest. And we are getting a lot of interest from the utilities. They're all screaming to see this technology demonstrated and working in those test loops because they're at the moment, the solution is to bury it on the ground and people want better solutions than that. They want to be able to get more energy out of it or reduce that, that long-term legacy issue. Yeah, and as you said, you're getting a second level of, of, of energy from, from the waste and then minimizing what actually gets stored in deep geological storage, whether it's in, in Canada or elsewhere. It's a fascinating technology, Rory. I've, 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 I saw you speak at a conference and, and you know we've talked about it a bit. I wanted to highlight one of the innovators from OCNI to, to remind people that I spoke about this industry years ago in the House of Commons. There's over 70,000 high-tech, well-paid uh, jobs in Canada that have export markets in all of CANDU countries uh, around the world, uh, and it's growing. And I've asked each of my guests, there's a bit of a uh, nuclear res- renaissance right now, uh, whereas a few years ago, like you were at a Trinity College, a lot of skeptical people, the technology had kind of, you know, particularly after Fukushima and, and some of the misguided political decisions in Germany, for example, um, it was going through a rough period. And now it seems whether it's um, Cameco's great work here in Canada, just general acceptance. I haven't seen it, but Oliver Stone has a new uh, positive movie on the on the sector as as a leader uh, in this sector. What do you think about this renaissance? And and do you think that it will mean more public investment, more public embrace of the, this technology as a critical part of our climate change uh, and energy plans for the future? Um, uh, you know, I. Um... I, I, I hate to feel like the one who says I told you so, but when I got into this and, and figured out nuclear power or whatever that was, you know, 2013 or something, 14, um, I this was obviously coming. 
I mean, we're going to look back and say, why the hell didn't we do this earlier? <laughs> if we want to decarbonize, you're on cuckoo land if you think you can do it without nuclear power. Like there's just the other technologies are just miles off being sufficient for decarbonization. So no matter what your views are on nuclear power, if you want to keep the lights on and decarbonize affordably, absolutely need new nuclear power and the, the a significant expansion of nuclear power and it's very exciting we're we need to be ready well it's funny that you you use that time frame 2013 you're kind of saying this is coming you have a sense of i told you so uh, i created a nuclear caucus in ottawa around 2013 and i was saying the same thing and what i found shocking after the paris climate change agreement where the new Trudeau government signed off, but on targets that had been set by our government, the conservative government previously, there was zero talk about this sector being part of the long-term lower carbon future. Yet Canada has almost a bit of first mover advantage in some areas of this sector. And as you said, a well-respected, very technical and safe, but much easier to navigate regulatory structure around it. Do you see this renaissance also making um, more job opportunities, more investments, a an economic renaissance for Canada if we show a little bit more ambition? Canada has a, a probably um, three-year lead uh, on other countries in this sector, maybe even more. Um, when I'm down at U.S. conferences, uh, the, the, you know, the U.S. knows that it's behind and it's got to catch up. And the U.S. is throwing a lot of money at the sector to be able to catch up. But there's a lot of work to do. So Canada really needs to embrace that that lead. And the economic opportunity, if Canada really does take a leadership um, stand, is absolutely staggering. But it needs to be able to – the big opportunity is really the manufacturing opportunity to export the components. You know, we're really a small – we're the technology owner. We're the technology des- the de- designer. We're a very small piece of the puzzle overall. So we're like, in a, you know, in a, in a regular construction job in your house, we're the architect. But all of the, you know, economic <laughs> development of a house project is all in the construction, making the, you know, all the different components. And and if Canada can do it right, it can manufacture these and, and sell the components um, around the world. And, to the, you know, it really is the green transition that will be huge if um, if we do it right. But it's all to be lost as well. Canada has an advantage in something. Rory, This we're making news here on, on Blue Skies. You know, we had an advantage in mining and mining finance and exploration that we kind of squandered. Now we're kind of waking up to critical minerals. And it, it, it took Joe, President Biden to, to come to Canada to sort of shake us out of our complacency on, on critical minerals. I, I agree. I think we have to seize this competitive advantage. And I will give credit. You know, the, the Liberal government finally started talking about nuclear uh, with Seamus O'Regan and uh, an MP, Cody Blois, uh, started talking about it. Um, some of the early ministers, like Minister McKenna, was uh, uh, viewed as an anti uh, in this sector. And I think we've only got a couple of years to really take advantage of this, uh, this first mover advantage. And I think Moltec's story in terms of innovation, in terms of um, cost effectiveness, reducing waste is a, is a truly exceptional one. So thank you for blue skying your technology and the nuclear renaissance with us today. Thank you for having me. It was very enjoyable. 
Well, that's Blue Skies, and that's the end of our series on the nuclear renaissance. I want to thank Rory. I want to thank Bill Walker and James Skoniak for talking about it. I'm very proud of OPG Darlington, uh, one of the most efficient, can-do, safest, award-winning producers, and will be the site of Canada's first commercial SMR, something small modular reactor, something that I've been working with the OPG folks and the Ontario government for many years, promoting, pushing. It's going to be here. So like anything, Canada can lead, must lead, but we have to seize the advantage. Thanks for blue skying this with me today. I'm MP Aaron O'Toole.